So, you want to be an entrepreneur, you want to invest in a startup, or maybe you want to work for one. In any case, you'll be playing a role that's integral to America's capitalist system, but where do you go to do it? Or do you just stay where you are? Hello again, I'm Aaron Alney, and this is the How the World Works podcast of the UCLA Anderson School of Management. Olaf Sorensen has some answers for people who are energized by that entrepreneurial spirit. He's come back to UCLA Anderson after stints at Yale, the universities of Chicago and Toronto, and the London Business School, just to name a few. He brings a long record of research and many publications in more than a dozen journals. He's faculty research director at the Price Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. Olaf Sorensen, welcome. Thank you, Warren. Happy to be here. You got interested in this during the dot-com boom in the 1990s. You were at Stanford all at the time, and there were all those startups in the Silicon Valley. What did you want to know? Well, I kind of wanted to know what was going on. You know, I saw lots of friends, uh, you know, colleagues in graduate school who were, instead of going off to the big companies that they used to, all of a sudden were excited by the startup scene, uh, either going to one of the startups themselves or, you know, sometimes basically doing their own venture. And so I was curious, you know, why is it so popular? And also, what is it about Silicon Valley? Was something different about Silicon Valley than other places? So that's really what sort of got me into it. What did you find? Well, you know, it's interesting. So the first piece of research that I decided to do was a a survey. I thought, you know, I'll go and I'll just ask people, you know, why uh, did you choose to go to Silicon Valley? So we sent out uh, a survey. In fact, we sent it out to people uh, across the nation, about 500 entrepreneurs. And we got responses back from around 130, 140 of them. And the thing that we found, which was actually pretty surprising to us, we expected that most of them would be sort of surveying the world, deciding what was the best place to start their startup. Most of them, you know, just told us, well, we started our business where we had been living uh, to start with. Uh, In fact, when we were trying to sort of understand better uh, what was going on, and remember, we decided to do a few interviews. So I went out and uh, one was, you know, at kind of your classical Silicon Valley startup, we drive up to this home and uh, the entrepreneur is in his garage. So we're interviewing him where he has his machinery, his computers and so forth. Uh, And I asked him, so, you know, why did you start your business here? And he sort of looks at me a little bit confused and he says, well, you know, my wife didn't want the mess in the kitchen. He didn't even really understand that the, the question was about why Silicon Valley. He thought it was about why the garage instead of the kitchen or some other room in the house. Uh, and then when we kind of dug in a little bit more, it became clear that, you know, he hadn't really thought that much about it. And even if he had, he probably would have started things there anyway, because that's where his friends were, that's where his colleagues were. And so then it really made me go and sort of rethink the research that I'd been doing. I decided that, well, maybe this kind of theoretical notion that had been prominent in research up to that point, thinking that, you know, what happened is that people were generally looking for the best location for their startup was wrong. Or maybe what it was is the best location wasn't determined just by the business, but also determined by who the founder was. And really the key here and, the, and why I think people are not moving, why it's actually the right answer for most people, is that entrepreneurs need to put together a lot of resources. They need to get financing. They need to hire employees to help them get started. And most of that happens through social networks. It happens through their existing relationships. And most of those relationships are you know, highly concentrated in the places that we've been living. So those ultimately are the right places for those entrepreneurs to start their businesses. 
Well, what about the fact, though, that uh, Silicon Valley has such a concentration uh, of startups then and I think still now? And uh, why is it that these people who decide they want to stay in their same neighborhood are all there in the first place? So that's a great question. So, you know, if you think about it, it's not just about having networks. Uh, there's some other research that's been done, actually, and most of it was done by a professor at Carnegie Mellon named Steve Klepper. And, you know, one of the things that he was focused on was the fact that experience in the industry matters a lot. So if you want to start a software company, it helps if you've worked for a software company before. The person who had started this CD-ROM publishing company had a background actually in software. And so he sort of was in a related industry. People that have that kind of industry background tend to be more successful when they start their own businesses. So if you think about what happens, it means that if we combine the fact that you sort of need prior experience in the industry, and that's mostly going to happen at the existing firms, with the fact that you need to be sort of local to be a successful entrepreneur, it means that most of the startups that come out in an industry are going to you know, appear sort of in the same regions that the incumbents are in. Uh, so Silicon Valley has a lot of uh, existing firms in various technology areas. And so you tend to see a lot of tech startups in the area as well. But it's not just about technology. The first industry that I studied was actually the shoe industry, leather footwear production. The data I was looking at started in the 1940s, when there were actually at one point, there were, I think, almost 2000 shoe plants uh, in the United States. And you saw the same thing in the shoe industry, where what would happen is people oftentimes might have been a foreman. For example, they'd be managing a factory or managing a line within a factory. At some point, they might say, you know, I think I could do this myself. And then they would usually stay in the same town and open their own shoe factory, maybe have their own design. But that's really the process that accounted for clusters like Boston, cluster around Milwaukee, Wisconsin. There's another around St. Louis, Missouri. Well, it still sounds to me, though, whether it's shoes or CD-ROMs, that if you want to start up and you're not in an area where that's already being done, it seems to me you'd want to go there and just get to know a lot of people. Well, you could do that, but it would probably take you a fair amount of time. So there's been some work looking at, you know, how long does it really take for a person to get integrated into a region it's to the point where they, they actually know more people maybe in the region or at least interacting with more people in a region than they are uh, in wherever they came from. And, and it turns out that it takes about five years to get to that point. If you were going to do that, your plan should probably be, you know, go work for an incumbent firm in the industry that you're interested in the area. And then maybe after some time, you would spin off and do your own thing. Even the story behind uh, Shockley of Shockley Semiconductor in the Bay Area, he had originally gone there for a job at uh, one of the existing electronics firms. So it does work both ways to a certain extent, but uh, what you're saying is that it's most likely uh, that a business will be successful if it begins uh, where the person who wants to begin it, the entrepreneur who wants to begin it, uh, is in fact already installed. Does the same thing apply to investors and to employees who want to go to work for startups? That's a good question. So for employees, it's less clear that that matters. Although, you know, if you sort of flip it around and think about it from the employee side, you know, why is it so hard for 
entrepreneurs to convince employees to join their venture? Why do they rely on social networks? Well, you know, a lot of it has to do with the fact that the employee is taking a huge risk. In fact, they're taking a much bigger risk than an investor is, right? An investor can spread their investments across many startups. If one of them fails, it's a loss, but it's not catastrophic. An employee, it's probably their only job. So if the startup fails, then all of a sudden they find themselves out of work and and needing to find something. So a lot of the early employees of startups are you know, people that are good friends or former work colleagues who know the founder well. That gives them a degree of trust in the founder, whether it's rational or not gives them the confidence to join a startup. So it's a little bit less important for an employee that you would go to a company that's, you know, kind of in the region where you have networks. But if you want to join a startup, it's most likely that you'll only know those entrepreneurs that you've been living in for a while. For investors, investors could invest more distantly. Interestingly, they don't seem to. So if you look at venture capital, actually one of the first papers that I wrote on sort of economic geography was looking at uh, the geographic dispersion of venture capital investments. And one of the things that we found was that venture capital firms rarely invested in a startup that was more than about 60 miles from their office. Part of that is the same type of dynamic, this time shifted over to thinking about the investor, where if you look at how venture capitalists decide whether or not they're willing to take a risk on a management team of founders, a lot of what they do is use their own personal networks, and they try to find people that they trust, that they know well, who also know the founder. So they're looking for these kind of two-step social connections. And it's rare, actually, that they invest in startups where one of those two-step connections doesn't exist. And so that in itself puts a geographic limit on how far away they can invest. This is fascinating research. Uh, Tell me, who do you think it helps the most? Who is it aimed at as far as you're concerned? Uh, Who do you want to teach and what do you want to teach them? You know, I sort of have two audiences, I think, that I'm interested in. I mean, one is very much the people that are potential founders or people that might either invest in or work for startups. So the, in some sense, the startup entrepreneurial community itself. The other, though, is is I'm kind of interested in trying to influence and form public policymakers. I mean, there has been this tendency for every region to think that they could become the next Silicon Valley and that that might be the solution uh, for them economically. And that's rarely, I think, the right answer. You know, Silicon Valley has a unique mix of things, uh, venture capital, existing tech companies, great universities, that's hard for a lot of regions to replicate. Well, what about the phenomenon we're seeing now? where startups establish, uh, and they're not so much looking for innovation anymore as they are for inefficiency, and maybe it's too expensive where they are. Maybe the employees don't want to come there anymore. What about that phenomenon, and do they then move? And if so, are they successful if they move out of that concentrated area uh, where they're most familiar? Uh, So, yeah. It's a great question. Definitely, we see some of this dynamic. If we think about a region like Silicon Valley, a lot of the advantage of being there is really at the early stages, you know, when you're still innovating, coming up with the new product, or maybe trying to improve the technology. But as the business becomes more sort of routinized, um, then the advantages of having access to that information go down, they lessen. And so it makes sense probably for a lot of those businesses to think about locating cheaper places, whether that's, you know, Idaho or Nevada or Texas, 
Um, you know, there's lots of other places that can probably offer the workforce they need for lower cost in terms of, you know, what would be property prices, in terms of how much they need to pay employees. But, you know, Silicon Valley remains a pretty uh, attractive place, I think, for firms that are, uh, you know, still at the innovation stages. Now, how do those firms do if they move? I mean, in general, I, I think the question of kind of where you want to be is very different when you're an established firm. Where an established firm, you don't need to rely so much on sort of social connections the way an entrepreneur does to get resources. If you're a large company, you have revenue that you can point to, you can get credit lines, you have a formal hiring process, potential employees know who you are. So a lot of the benefits for the entrepreneurs also disappear. So it's easier for those companies to move and continue to be successful wherever they go to. It sounds to me that social relationships appear to have an enormous role in all of this. What about what's happening with regard to COVID and the fact that uh, we're not face-to-face anymore and people in uh, corporations aren't face-to-face anymore in the way that they used to? Is something going to be lost because of that? So I think that's a really interesting issue. I mean, COVID has created this almost forced experiment in work from home across thousands of organizations. And, you know, I think we're going to learn from this a lot about which types of activities uh, can be done from home and which cannot. I mean, I think there's a couple of things, really important things that get lost when we're working from home. So one is the kind of information exchange, you know, colloquially at the water cooler. It may just be in the hallway or it may be in the lunchroom. But all of these, you know, short interactions that are unstructured, they're usually not about, you know, meeting about a particular thing. But oftentimes there's some really important information that's being transmitted in those conversations. And that gets lost when we're online. I mean, if I'm just have a quick question, I'm not going to schedule a Zoom call with somebody to just ask one question, whereas I might drop by somebody's office who's next door to me to just quickly, you know, bounce something off them. So I think there's also a, you know, it's kind of related to this, but there's like an aspect of sort of social cohesion that tends to get lost, where it's easier for people to start doing things on their own, to think that what they're doing is very efficient, because they're not bothering other people, but that can rub people the wrong way if they feel like things are happening that they're not aware of. Uh, and I think that can cause additional conflict within organizations. So what ends up being kind of a net positive, net negative, I think may depend on the types of jobs we're talking about and the types of businesses we're talking about. But there's a lot that's lost uh, when we're only working from home. So there are people who are saying, hey, thank God, I don't have to commute anymore. I don't have to go through all of that. Uh, And I can work at home very comfortably and uh, I can do it sort of on my own time. But what you're suggesting is that those seemingly random conversations that we have or interactions with other people could be really much more important to the success of the corporation than you realize at the time. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, you know, if you sort of think about what life is like in the office, which uh, feels increasingly distant as we get, you know, kind of months away from being in the office, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if in an average day in an office, a person might have uh, conversations with 20 or more people. Most of those are very short. But they're short conversations, and oftentimes some key, you know, kind of pieces of information are getting transmitted in those. And and without those conversations, that information transfer is being lost. 
So is it possible that people who are running the company together most of the time and are used to doing that aren't running into each other? Do they start doing things on their own? I think there's a tendency to do that. It just feels like the efficient thing to do if you know, we have authority to do it, if we think we know what we want to do, is to just go ahead and do it. You know, sometimes that's the right answer. But, you know, there's reasons why one thing that has become a pretty common practice, both in startups and, you know, in R&D teams, even in large companies, is to have the, the morning scrum. It's a very short meeting, might be five minutes. Oftentimes it's standing, nobody sits down. But there's this very short meeting just to make sure that everybody kind of knows what everyone else is doing and whether or not somebody's changed direction in a way that could affect other people. You can have a virtual scrum, but I think that those are more likely to sort of break down uh, when you're not actually physically in the office interacting. So the overall theme then seems to be that social relationships have a big impact on business, both in the terms of the startups that we began talking about, but also about the ongoing conduct of the businesses involved. For sure. I think that there's a, a lot of ways in which social networks uh, affect interactions, affect exchange that have really been underappreciated. Something that's sort of not related to geography, but uh, is interesting given our our own location in LA is, you know, one of the early research projects that I did was looking at the importance of social connections in the film industry. And what I found was that a lot of, you know, sort of who distributed a film was driven by prior connections between that company, say a Paramount or Sony, and some of the key members of the production team. Think about like the producer, the director, maybe the top couple build stars, and those relationships tended to reoccur. Interestingly, the films that were carried by distributor-producer combinations that had a prior relationship did better in the box office. But it did better because the distributors put more money into those films. They advertised them more heavily, they gave them better opening dates, got them on more, you know, kind of talk shows and so forth. In the end, it looks like almost all of the effect was sort of due to this kind of almost self-confirming prophecy where because they thought they had worked with good people, they wanted to work with them again. They invested more in them, but it was that investment that created the differential return rather than differences in the sort of the quality of films themselves. But isn't it true still that if you are not in Los Angeles or New York, uh, you're going to have less of an opportunity to either be an entrepreneur or be a uh, employee or uh, operator at the same time? So in the film industry, absolutely. It's uh, be very hard to kind of break into the industry uh, from outside of LA or uh, New York or uh, a, a few other places, Toronto, Sydney, you know, there's a, a few other kind of international locations, um, even though shoots themselves uh, tend to be quite international these days. Fascinating to talk with you. Is there any other uh, a final word that you would like uh, to make? Any question I haven't asked you? Well, I think that, you know, the one thing that you didn't ask me was about uh, whether or not it kind of makes sense or whether it's a good thing to work for a startup. That's actually one of the things that I've been doing research on most recently. The entrepreneurs themselves have gotten a lot of attention, but there hasn't been a lot of attention to the people that are going to work for these startups. Are they different from other people? How does it affect their careers? And 
One of the things that I think is, is very interesting there is that they do seem to be a little bit different. So you're getting a different type of person that's going to a startup than, say, a small family firm. Uh, even if you look within an industry, the people that are going to startups tend to be younger. They're more likely to be men. They're actually a little bit less educated on average. Even if you sort of account for all those factors and what they would probably earn at another firm, those that go to work for startups earn less over their entire careers. Uh, and most of that is because they have multiple spells of unemployment. So they'll be working at the startup, you know, the startup fails, which is a pretty common, you know, kind of event. About half of all startups will fail within four years. And then they find themselves unemployed. And so they have to, you know, look for their next job. A lot of times that ends up being another startup. Sometimes it ends up being uh, a small, you know, more established firm. But usually relative to somebody who would have been at a larger employer, they take a pay cut. Not in the sense that they're actually maybe earning less at their next job, but the person who's at the established company, you know, is kind of getting those annual raises, is moving up the hierarchy in the company maybe, and uh, the startup employees are losing out on that on average. It's not to say that it's uh, the wrong thing for everyone, but I think that you know when people are thinking about startup employment, they need to understand that there's a cost to it, and in terms of you know kind of their financial returns. So we think of risk when we think about entrepreneurs. We think about risk when we think about investors, but there's a big risk to being an employee as well. Exactly. Well, wonderful to speak with you, and uh, thank you so much, uh, particularly for asking that very important question, which I had uh, uh, failed to come up with. We've been speaking with Olaf Sorensen at UCLA Anderson's Price Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. This is the latest episode of the podcast, How the World Works. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.